But you know, here we are. We're back home. As has been mentioned, beautiful day. And as we do all these things and think about these things, the Feast of Tabernacles 2005 is history. Now, I've heard reports from the various sites that uh, a grand time was had by all. Now, there were some threats of weather around. We all prayed about that, and, and it drove the weathermen nuts. They didn't know where the weather was going to go. <laughs> they couldn't understand why it didn't follow the patterns that they thought it would. But uh, certainly in um, uh, Florida, we were really concerned about the hurricane, and it, it went south and didn't disrupt the feast, so that was a wonderful blessing. And other areas, we had beautiful days. Sometimes we had some liquid sunshine, but uh, no really bad weather at any of the sites that I'm aware of. But we had feasts in lovely areas. We had outstanding sermons, I'm sure, where we were and, and where you were as well. Great fellowship, great activities, all the things that God's people enjoy about the Feast of Tabernacles. Truly, it's the highlight of our year. Now, <clears throat> as we think about it, what will be the long-term effect of the Feast of Tabernacles this year on you? Now that you're home, you've unpacked, well, most of you, some of you are still traveling, but most of you are home, you've unpacked, you've done the laundry, you've read the mail, you've checked your emails, you've gotten everything put away. Now, what will you have left that pertains to this feast? <clears throat> you've got your photos, you uh, may have some souvenirs, certainly you have pleasant memories, uh, maybe some lessons learned from your experiences while you were there. But brethren, will there be any permanent effect on your life? Any real impact on your character from the feast this year? Was the feast just an emotional high, an enjoyable experience, or something much more lasting than that? Now, as we think about these things, brethren, God wants us to gain from these experiences that we have. Turn back to 2 Peter chapter 3. Dr. Scott Winnell referred to this chapter a little earlier, but he didn't cover what I want to cover. 2 Peter chapter 3. God wants us to gain from these experiences that he uh, in, uh, instructs us to do, the feast and the other things. 2 Peter 3 verse 17. You know this by heart. You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand... Obviously, they were aware of what he was talking about. And brethren, we went to the feast and you heard things maybe that you'd heard before, things that you were reminded of, things that we rehearsed. We go over these things and, and review these things. Since you know these things beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. As human beings, that's a danger. As human beings, we can lose our way, you see. Being led away with the error of the wicked, which means the lawless or lawless men goes on, and this is the part I want to focus on, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. It's obvious that God wants us as His people to grow. And the things that we see and the things that we do at the Feast of Tabernacles are there to help us to grow. We're to grow. I, I sometimes ask people as they, we're talking about their children and we love our kids and they say, how long do you want your child to be in the third grade? Once. <laughs> and then you want them to grow. You want them to grow in, in uh, maturity. You want them to grow in knowledge, you see. God wants us as his people to grow continually as long as we live. Whatever stage of life we're in, we can learn and we can grow. And the feast is such a wonderful opportunity to do that. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 5 as we think about this subject of growing and our progress as human beings and our spiritual growth. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5 verse 13. Here it's talking about being mature. Hebrews 5 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness for he is obeyed. Verse 14. But solid food... Belongs to those who are of full, of full age, that is, mature. Those who by reason of use or experience or practice have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Brethren, hopefully you were given some meaty sermons at the Feast of Tabernacles. Things that, that you could really uh, stir your hearts and, and, and stir your uh, desire to study and to learn more and to really grow. Things that would be considered meat, as it were, rather than just the milk of the Word. 
We are to learn to use God's word and to apply God's truth to our everyday lives so that we can grow, as Peter admonished us, certainly. So, brethren, with that in mind, let's look at what God wants us to learn at the feast in an effort to be certain that the feast we've just completed will be very successful for you. If you want a title for today's sermon, I've entitled it, Will Your Feast Be Successful? You see, brethren, the success of this feast has yet to be determined. Certainly, we talk about the things we enjoy. We talk about the wonderful time we had. But it really depends now upon what you do with it. Think about it, brethren. We've spent a lot of time, each of you individually. Well, you spent effort. You spent money. And you spent this time in doing these things. And so what will be the long-term effect on that? There are really two main things that we should learn by keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, in his sermonette today, Dr. Winnell turned back to Leviticus 23. I'm going to follow his really good example and go there as well. Leviticus 23. Now, these are words that we reviewed often before the feast and during the feast. But let's, as we debrief, I think is the, is the term, as we go over these things and see what we can learn from it, let's take a look once again at Leviticus 23. Drop down to verse 34, where it talks about the days that we've just kept. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. So it's a feast for seven days. You know, when you talk to people who aren't in the church and you tell them you're going to do some church activities for seven days, it blows their mind. <laughs> they just get, you know, that seems like such a long time. And it is, of course. And yet, they don't understand that this is the command. And if God says to do it, then we do it and we get the blessings that come from that. It's a feast for seven days. Going on, it says on the first day there will be a holy convocation. We certainly enjoyed that with the, um, the sermons and so on that we had that day. And the things that we focused on, an opportunity to give a holy day offering. Going on then in verse 36, for seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Happily, we don't have to do that. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire. Again, no, we don't have to do that. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. So we have this time that is special time, not the time that we ply our normal trade, do the things that we're doing, our customary work. We have that for seven days, and then the eighth day, the wonderful day, a separate festival, the last great day, always the highlight of the feast, as we focus on what it means and what it pictures, not only for us, but for this entire world, for the universe, when we understand God's plan. Look at verse 42. You shall dwell in booths, or temporary shelters. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Of course, at that time, it was the native Israelites. Obviously, today, it's the uh, spiritual Israel. All who are a part of the church are to do these things. Temporary dwellings. You know, I can remember my first feast in 1968, and I went down to Big Sandy, Texas, and there I saw something that was very unusual for me, something called Booth City. (laughs) All of these little metal buildings, all in a neat row, and it was called Booth City. For the first time, I could really wrap my mind around what a booth was. It was a, a temporary dwelling. And over time, making trips down there to that campus, we stayed in those booths for various athletic events and, and so on. So uh, it was <clears throat> something that you could, you could really focus on. And those booths were there for the Feast of Tabernacles even before the college was there, as I understand it. Now, verse 43 tells us why God would have us do this strange thing to live in temporary dwellings for uh, seven days. Why? Verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the eternal, your God. Why? You know, this might seem so foolish, even stupid to some. Because, but God wanted us to do this because God wanted us to walk away from the feast with the knowledge that he brought his people out of bondage. He brought those Israelites long ago out of physical bondage, bitter servitude. And certainly today, brethren, we have been brought out of bondage of sin and the traditions and the false information that enslaves and shackles this world. They brought them, he brought them long ago out of that servitude into his rest. Now, 
That was his promise to them. But for 40 years, they did not enter that rest. For 40 years, they were not inheritors, but they were heirs. They had something, you see, to look forward to. So God had them dwell in blues to be reminded that they were heirs. They had not yet received the promise. And brethren, certainly I think we as God's people are reminded each year when we go away from our our homes, our permanent dwellings, and dwell in temporary dwellings for that time, certainly as we do that, whether it's a tent or an RV or a motel or a condo or someone's residence, we're reminded every year that we are heirs of the world to come. This is not our permanent, this is not residence, this is not our goal. Now, let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 3. It illustrates this so beautifully. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. Our ancestors, you see, were stiff-necked and hard-hearted and would not listen. He's saying we should certainly not be that way. Where your fathers tested me, Proved me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. And brethren, before God called us and gave us His Spirit and gave us the help that we need, and we were in this way. We're going astray in our heart, in our attitude, in our ways. And they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. He wrote to the, Paul wrote to the Hebrews, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Brethren, this warning is for us. As we get back and get into our routine, will we become complacent? Will we forget the things we were supposed to have learned? We should be uh, certainly uh, warned as it was here. Verse 13, But exhort one another, encourage one another daily while... It is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For there, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? You know the story so well. We rehearse it every spring when we keep the Passover. And the days of unleavened bread. Now, with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? People who would not do what they had been instructed to do. They were disobedient. So we see that they could not enter in because, enter in because of unbelief. They were unfaithful and they did not obey. Something we need to certainly be on guard against, brethren, as we get back into our routine, as we go around about our normal lives. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, we heard about part of that rest being pictured in the Sabbath in the sermonette today. Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Drop down to verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. Again, we're exhorted here to be careful to do the things that we've learned, to be careful to do those things that we've been instructed and admonished to do. Verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and the, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Important that we realize that, brethren. And the value of Bible study and the value of looking into God's Word is just emphasized when we understand what it can reveal to us. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly, to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. So we read these verses, brethren, and we get a vivid reminder of what can happen if we aren't serious about doing the things that God has instructed us, about putting these things into practice, about being careful to follow the instructions that we've given, been given. And I know that you are, but certainly it, it, is, it pays for us to be reminded. Now we know that you Bible students know your history. After entering the Promised Land, it took the Israelites six years to conquer Canaan. Then they entered in to rest in that seventh year. But it was short-lived. Why? Because of their disobedience. Because they did not obey. And God certainly uh, did, took away their blessings because of that. At the feast, we live in a temporary situation. And by the time we get to the end of our eight days, as much as we've enjoyed it, uh, we're glad to get back to our regular surroundings and to our regular routine. Now, each time... We do these things each time we keep the feast. For some of you, it's been many years. For some that I met there this year, it was their first feast. They were so excited. And those that have only had a few feasts were just really thrilled. And I think the old timers were as well. But as many times as we do this, we're reminded that we've been delivered from the bondage of sin. And that we are temporary. We are still heirs, not yet inheritors. Turn over a few pages to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. You know these verses so well. We'll begin in verse 13. Hebrews 11, verse 13, talking here in the verses that go before about Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Sarah. Coming on down, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. At each Feast of Tabernacles, brethren, we are reminded that we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Now, the other thing that we need to learn is found in Deuteronomy 14. And you're probably thinking, oh, we, we read that so many times. Well, let's read it again. Let's read it again today as we debrief, as we consider the Feast of Tabernacles that we've just kept. Deuteronomy 14. Here we have in this chapter the law of the tithes, the law of food in the first part. And we'll pick up the story, the instruction, Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. It says, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. It's talking here about the festival tithe. I told someone earlier, they said, How was your feast? And I said, Well, I came home tired and broke. So <laughs> that means it was good. That was one of the elements. But now we get to start over. You see, we get to start over putting aside the festival tithe, which means that when it rolls around again, when the time comes, we'll have the resources to keep the feast and to enjoy the things that God would have us to do. I hope, brethren, that you're already starting that as you see how this year went and that as we begin the new year that you'll be saving your festival tithe. 23, and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to Make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, all those good things. I brought home about five extra pounds, so I did my part. <laughs> now I have to get rid of that. But the point is that we go and enjoy all the wonderful food and so on at the feast. And it tells us why in the latter part of the verse, that you may learn to fear the eternal your God always. Isn't that an interesting concept? We go and have all these wonderful things. And we are to learn to fear God. That's the purpose. That's what we're supposed to learn. Now, what does it mean to fear? It doesn't mean terror. It doesn't mean fright in that way. What it means is, in Strong's Concordance, you look it up, it means to revere. It means to have reverence. It means to have deep and abiding respect. It means to be in awe of the great God. That's what we learn. And when we hear the things that are discussed there, when we hear the messages and when we think about them and pray about them, hopefully, brethren, we, get the, we, we catch the vision that God wants us to have. Turn back to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, another familiar verse as we think about this. We're to learn to fear God. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Here it talks about 
the attitude that God wants from His people. Thus says the Eternal, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. He is over all of it, you see. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? Verse 2, For all these things my hand is made and all these things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. This is the person to whom God will look. On him who is poor, you see, poor in spirit, and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles or is in awe of my word. This is someone, you see, who has learned to fear God in the sense that it means that in Deuteronomy 14. We're to come away from the Feast of Tabernacles with an increased awareness of God. His power, His plan that we've heard explained in such great detail. His purpose, we should rather understand more deeply and more fully than we did when the feast started. What God's plan is all about and our part in it. It should inspire us and help us to just have more resolve than we ever had before as we wrap up the feast, you see. We should stand in awe, being deeply impressed with God. That's the purpose of the feast, that we learn to fear Him in that way. You know, I think as we kept the feast this year, I ran across a verse that I'd read many times, and yet let's look at it together. Look at Acts 15. We know, we heard sermons about the power of God and the things that He is accomplishing and how His will will be done. Acts 15, verse 18. This is... As you know, the, the account of the ministerial conference in Acts 15 has had many things to straighten out, many things to work on at that time long ago. And we'll just look at verse 18 of Acts 15. It says, Known to God from eternity are all His works. What an awesome concept. God is known from the beginning, from eternity. You know, eternity stretches our brain. You can't really uh, understand something that has no beginning and no end. God dwells in eternity. And the, the works that He is doing, He is known from eternity. I think we should be inspired by that. And we should stand in awe of that. And I know that you do. So brethren, as we consider the feast, we are to be reminded that we are temporary. And we are to be reminded of the greatness of the God whom we serve, the great Creator God. Now at the Feast of Tabernacles, we heard that this... Uh, is not our world. The world that we see around us is not our world. I know that you enjoyed, I certainly enjoyed the Behind the Work presentation. We saw there, we were introduced to a small group of dedicated people, each doing their part in the work at headquarters. But you know, the work is greater than headquarters, as it were. It involves uh, everyone that's a part of the church, everyone who supports the work. Uh, everyone has their part. Certainly someone's part in some remote area may be to pray for it and to, to support it financially, but also in being a good example in a person's work, in their community, as they go about living a, a, a godly life. That's a part of, of showing this world that there is a way of life to which we are called. So everyone has their part in that way. We saw that and we focused on the work and what's being accomplished by a handful of people. Brethren, we are small. Dr. Meredith often mentions that we're small. We are small and yet we are reaching millions of people through the media efforts that we're doing. We ask God to multiply that and magnify that in ways that only He can. And we know that He will. So we work hard to do our part and then rely upon God to do the rest. At the feast we heard about the horrors and the evil that now goes on in this world. And we also heard something about the time of great trouble that's coming. A time that makes us all feel very soberly minded about what the future holds for our nation and what this world. But then we look beyond that to the wonderful things that are to come. The wonderful things that are going to happen in the tomorrow's world that we write about and speak about and that we're publishing and putting out to this world. It's an incredible thing as we think about it. You know, brethren, this world which to, to the people in this world seems so permanent, is really so temporary. It's so fragile. Look at the devastation on the Gulf Coast that we've experienced in just the last few months. An incredible 
incredible amount of devastation down there in the United States of America. We've seen it happen in other places around the world, but now it's on our soil. It's in our country. And all the might and all the power of our nation is not able to cope with that. We're not able to meet the needs of the people in some of those areas. Our resources are stretched too thin. Even now, as we heard as the services began, millions of people are still without power in Florida and other areas. It will take months, even years, to clean up and repair all of this damage. What looks so permanent one day is gone the next. This world, you see, brethren, is temporary. Now, we understand that, and yet we live in this world and work in this world, and sometimes we can be lose sight of the fact that it is temporary. Look at, at John 18. Jesus Christ talked about this. John 18, verse 36. Pilate was questioning Jesus, asking him probing questions. And Jesus answered him in John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Rather than the kingdom that we talk about, the kingdom that we proclaim, is not what we see around us. It is the world to come, the, the world that Jesus Christ talked about. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not now be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not now, is not from here. Jesus was explaining to Pilate, who didn't get it, I'm sure. But the point is, his kingdom is not of this world. Christ said, this is not my world. And this world that we see around us, brethren, is going to pass away. John wrote about that in 1 John, a passage that we often refer to, but let's look at it today. 1 John 2. The Apostle John talking about this world, this age, this society. John, 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. You know, there's a lot in this world to love. When you consider the, the luxurious goods that we have, the fun places to go and the fun things to do, you see, people can look at that and it'd be a great distraction. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, if the world is a person's priority, if that is what they're all about, if that's what they're seeking and pursuing, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, we could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about that. The flesh pots of this world are, uh, are alive and well, as it were. This is what people are focusing on. Look at it in entertainment. Look at it in almost any uh, facet of our society. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. It's the whole basis of the whole advertising field, you see, is to uh, uh, get people's lust buds going here. I've got to have that, you see. I want that. Without that, I'm an incomplete person. People have this gnawing inside. And so they go buy something, and very quickly that gnawing is back. Because things do not fill that, fill that void. Only a spiritual thing, only God's Spirit can fill that void. The lust of the eyes and the pride of life. All of that, you see, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Look at verse 17. And the world, which seems so permanent, which seems so powerful, which seems like it couldn't fall, and the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Brethren, this world will pass away. At the Feast of Tabernacles, we focus on that. We are directed to think about that, and we look beyond this present age to the world to come. As individuals, as we uh, look at these things and consider these things, as free moral agents, we have a choice. We have a choice. As we think about this, brethren, where is our allegiance as God's people? Where is our allegiance? To whom and to what are we loyal What's on our mind? What grabs our attention? What do we focus on? What is our emphasis? Brethren, what's important to you? What gets your attention and holds your attention? These are things that we have to think about as God's people. Turn over to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Various passages we could look at that illustrate this. But as we think about what we want and what we want to do, 
We need to have our priorities straight. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Here it talks about the cost of being a disciple. It talks about what's involved if we are to follow Jesus Christ in His way. Mark 8, verse 34. And when He had called the people to Him with His disciples also, He said to them, Whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself. Now, for human beings, that's not easy. We might say that's not normal, you see, because we don't want to deny self. We want to give self what self wants. You know, there's an old expression, nobody's interested in your deal but you. You see, that's self. But he says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, his burden, whatever that might be, and follow me. And each of us has... Something different to bear, I'm certain. Verse 35, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So we have to pursue those things that God would have us pursue, those things that have, pertain, that do, have to do or pertain to the gospel and our part in it. And then we'll be saved, you see. Verse 36, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Obviously, we can get stuff, but it will not ever mean be meaningful or satisfy us in that way. And in the long run, we lose. We lose our lives. Verse 37, Or what will a man, man gain, give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, brethren... If we are caught up in this world, we miss the point. We miss the point. We certainly do not want that to happen. The sins of mankind that we see all around us result from following these physical appetites. Vanity and jealousy and lust and greed. All of, if you look around you and you see the horrendous, seemingly unsolvable problems in this world, it comes from breaking God's laws, from following these physical appetites. It comes from a materialistic approach to life. And certainly the underlying value system of this world will be blotted out at Christ's return. In the leaf of my Bible, I have a quote that I wrote down in 1985 when someone from headquarters at that time made this statement, the world and its way of doing things must not be rebuilt. See, there will not be any part, any vestige of what we see around us that will survive in tomorrow's world. It will be a different age, a different society, different values. And brethren, as we go to the Feast of Tabernacles, go through the motions, hear those sermons, do those things, that's what we're to focus on. This is what we're to learn from it. It's important that we we grasp that. Now, Turn back to Luke 17. Here we see a vivid description of this society. Luke 17. Verse 26. Jesus Christ is explaining what it will be like at the time of His return. Luke 17, verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was business as usual up until that day. It seems that's the way it will be in our time. Business as usual. So you can't look around you, you see. And know what's going on in that way. Verse 28, likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. What did the politician say? It's the economy, stupid. You see, that's, that's, it's the, it's, this is what this world's about. It's about commerce. It's about doing business. When the great catastrophe occurred on the coast, the first thing they talked about was it interrupted commerce. Nothing was going on. I heard one commentator say, no tax dollars were collected today. (laughs) I'm sure that was not on the minds of people who were hungry and thirsty. But we see that it's business as usual. 
But on that day, verse 29, on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he is, who is on the housetop and his goods are on the house, let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. It's going to be a real sense of urgency under those circumstances. And look at verse 32. A very simple but very meaningful verse. Verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. You know the story, brethren. She looked back longingly at where they'd come from. And it cost her her life. Brethren, we should not be looking back longingly at this age. I'm sure there were things there that tugged at her heart. I'm, you know, maybe they just remodeled the house, you see. Maybe the new furniture had just been delivered. Maybe she was thinking about children and grandchildren. But whatever it was, it cost her her life. And brethren, we certainly need to learn that lesson and not look back longingly at this age. We need a deep realization of who we are and what God has in store for us. And sometimes as we go about our daily rush, and all of you have pressures on your time, things that have to be done to keep life and limb together, all the things that we do, we lose sight of that great purpose, that great calling that we have. And we can be like Lot's wife and look back. And certainly that's not what we should ever do. It's not what we as God's people should do. So we have to be on guard. In Revelation 18... John wrote about this society, and there's something that we think about a lot. We talk about it certainly in the spring holy days. In Revelation 18, verse 4, he said, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. That's been our instruction. That's our calling, to come out of this world and its society. We do that for eight days. We go to come together. Obviously, we're still in the world in the sense that we're in, still in this age, but we do things differently. We we are there at the feast, and it reminds us of what this is saying. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. Brethren, do we get the point? If we don't come out, if, if you inherit this world, you will inherit the plagues that are coming upon it. Not something that any of us want. They're described very vividly in uh, Exodus. They're described very vividly in Revelation. These are not plagues that we want to be involved in. God says, come out. And so, brethren, as we think about these things, we need to teach our children right values. And you know what? The feast is a wonderful opportunity to do that. At the feast, we try to do things God's way. Now, do we do it perfectly? No. Sadly, we don't. On the other hand, we are working on it, and we, God is patient as we try to work on these things. You know, you think about attire for services. Mostly, it was very good where I was, and there were some things that we could improve in that area. The dance that we had turned out just beautifully. The music was good. Uh, the style of dancing was good. And everybody had a, a wonderful time. Certainly at the feast, we focused on chaste behavior with our young people and others, being very careful not to get involved in anything that would involve unchaste-type behavior. Um, certainly the right use of food, the right use of alcohol, all those things you see are things that we do at the Feast of Tabernacles things that we need to know how to do. And we get to rehearse them and we get instruction on those and we get to put that into practice in a way that we don't in other times of the year. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is the only feast in which God insists that we get up and go somewhere. The other feasts, you see, we keep in our home place. We, we do something that disrupts our routine. You know what? It's not easy for most of you to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, there's this business about getting off work. Uh, there's this business about getting kids out of school. <laughs> there's this business about uh, making uh, reservations and um, all the things that can go wrong and often do in, in travel. It can be a lot of fun, but it also takes energy and effort and thought. And so it disrupts our routine. Why did God have us do that? He wanted us to learn something. It's a learning experience. Certainly, uh, this is not God's world, and He wants us to know that. And so as we go through these things, we definitely uh, are reminded that there are things that are going on that are not our usual routine. We get away from that, and certainly He wants us to do that. Now, James chapter 1, 
defines something that God wants us to do. Defines religion, and there's, a, there's an expression there that really tells us what God wants from us. J- James chapter 1, verse 27. You know it by heart. James 1, 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Certainly as we prepare for the feast, we try to take care of widows and orphans and help people who are not able to go unless they have financial help. But here's the part I want to focus on. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world, unstained from the smut, you see, that can be in this world. We are to be stain-free as God's people. Now, do we do that perfectly? Of course, we do not. And yet we go to God and ask for forgiveness. But we're focusing on it. We're trying. We're not practicing sin as a way of life. We're trying to do what God wants. That's what He wants. He wants us to be unspotted or stain free. He does not want us to conform. Turn back to Romans 12. We have that even as an instruction. Romans Chapter 12, in our, the new edition of the Tomorrow's World magazine, there's an article about youth, and it says, I want to be an individual just like everyone else. <laughs> see? And sometimes when you see the styles and when you see uh, how people are dressing and so on, particularly as young people, not to pick on young people, but uh, it's like a uniform. I think they're being individuals, but it's really like a uniform. Romans 12, verse 2. Verse 1 talks about being a living sacrifice. Verse 2, it says, And do not be conformed to this world. Brother, that is so easy to do. It's so easy to get caught up in that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, as we go about doing these things, brother, we... uh, the people around us see that we don't conform in many ways to what this world is doing. Long ago, Jesus told his disciples, you know, he didn't want them to go hide in a cave. He said, Father, in John 17, I don't want you to take them out of the world. In other words, we have to live and work and do our our, our business in this world. We have to live our lives in this world, but we are not to be a part of this world. And certainly at the Feast of Tabernacles, more than any other time of the year, we certainly try to strive to do things God's way, in a decent and orderly way. Um, I always make the joke that the only time I will stand in line is at the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> the rest of the time, I'll find something else to do. But we do that at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, parking can be a problem. Our groups aren't very large today, but still, sometimes parking can be a thing. Uh, uh, being patient as you wait on services or if you wait on people to take care of you at food service, those sorts of things. And as we go about doing these things with uh, our children and our uh, older people and we work all together, do all these things as family activities, these things are not lost on the communities that we visit. I had people um, in the building we were in, in Myrtle Beach comment, people that were not a part of the feast, but they would see our people going to and from services. And they just thought it was marvelous. What well-behaved children, what nice people. People know, they noticed that. And certainly that's a part of what God wants us to do, brethren, is to be a good example. Not just at the feast, but year-round. But at the feast we have the opportunity to do that in a way that we don't. And as I said, it's not lost on the communities that we are visiting. Now, the key to rejoicing at the feast and the rest of the year is to learn to fear Him. We talked about that. Now, brethren, we often fear other things more than God. We're supposed to fear God. Sometimes people will glance around to see who's watching before they do something. <laughs> At least figuratively, they'll, 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 they'll check to see who's watching before doing something. Now, if you want to see who's watching, don't look over your shoulder. Look up. Because God sees everything that you're doing. He knows your every thought. He knows your every word. It's very important. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. As God's people, we're to be on our good behavior at all times. Matthew 6, verse 4. Here it's talking about doing charitable deeds. But the last part of the verse says, And your Father who sees in secret. You see, you don't have any secrets from God. Rather than you don't ever surprise God. He knows your hearts. 
The father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. It's important. Look down at verse 6. It says that again. Your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So your thoughts, your innermost thoughts, your words, the things that you do in your house, in your bedroom, uh, wherever you are, the great God knows what is going on for certain. Verse 18, it says, So you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. My point in reading these is God sees. You know that, but it's good to be reminded. God sees. He knows your every doing. Turn back to Psalm 139. A Psalm of David, who had such a wonderful relationship with God. Psalm 139. Here we find beautiful words. David had the picture. Psalm 139. Verse 7. David wrote, Where can I go from your spirit? And of course the answer is obvious, brethren, nowhere. Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell or in the grave, in the pit, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Brethren, clearly, there's no place to hide from God. Not that we should want to. And yet as human beings, you see, we need to know that God uh, certainly sees us wherever we are and whatever we're doing. Now, sometimes people think they get away with things. Brethren, we need to be aware of the reality of it, of the reality of God. We hear about that more at the feast probably than at any other time. But we need to know that. You see, God sees. He is looking. He's interested in what we are doing as his people. We have a calling, and that is a very high calling. And, and he, is, he is observant. He knows what we are doing. Now, why do people do the things they do sometimes? Turn back to Proverbs 29. Proverbs is full of good advice, of course. Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29, verse 25. It says, The fear of man brings a snare or a trap. Why do people do the things they do, brother? Peer pressure. Peer pressure. And it's not just young people that succumb to peer pressure. You know, it's, it's this business about what will people think. And we're all subject to that, regardless of our age. For the, a little kid in school or a teen or a young adult or an older person. As human beings, you know, we say, well, what will people think? And certainly, the fear of man brings a snare, it says. It will trap you. It goes on and says, but whoever trusts in the Lord... She'll be safe. So, brethren, we need to trust in God and not really worry about what people are thinking. Another reason that that people do the things they do is they say, hey, everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. Then it's probably wrong. (laughs) It's probably wrong if everybody's doing it. Because very often people are going in the direction that uh, whatever's popular, whatever's cool, whatever is uh, uh, the, the hot thing for the moment. And very often, it's not the thing that we should be doing. Not everything, of course, but when everybody's doing it, examine it carefully to be sure that it's something that we should be doing. Now, I mentioned peer pressure is the reason we do a lot of the things that we do. Whose opinion is important to you? If you think about it, you'll think it's those with whom you are impressed. Those people who you're impressed with, you want to be like them. So it's important, you see, that, that we not be impressed by the wrong sorts of things, the wrong sorts of values. Some of the dress that we see today, even in the church, it's amazing. Obviously, people are dressed that way because they see somebody they're impressed with. And I think in t- sometimes they pick the wrong role model. You know, there's way too much skin, children, <laughs> and other things. 
But brethren, um, we want to blend in. As human beings, we want to be like each other. We would like to be in the in crowd. And often the in crowd is not where we want to be. Now, brethren, how do you resist peer pressure? Again, we all are subject to it. How do we resist peer pressure? It goes back to what we learned at the Feast of Tabernacles. Fear God. Fear God and be concerned about what He thinks, what His values are. And then you'll not be worried about peer pressure. If you fear men, as it says here in Proverbs, you'll be trapped or snared. If you fear God, you'll be safe. Very, very important. Turn back to Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28. Another familiar scripture to all you Bible students. Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues. Now, why would that be, brethren? Well, the wicked have an uneasy feeling. (laughs) They know they're wrong. They know they're going to be found out sooner or later. You know, it's like the old story. If you're telling the truth, you don't have to worry about what you said. If you're lying, you've got to remember all that stuff. And look at our politicians that are in difficulty now because they say one thing one day and, and something else another day, and they have to remember all that, and some of them are being indicted. Brethren, if, if, we, if we're very careful about those things, that will not be a problem. The wicked flee because they have that uneasy feeling. Now, we as God's people, it says, uh, the rest of that verse is, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And that should be us. People who are very careful to do the things that we should do, following God's commandments, following His way of life, following the godly traditions of the church, doing the things that we should be doing. And then we can be bold. We don't have to worry about those things. Now, you know the stories found in Numbers 13 and 14. Uh, You know, Joshua and Caleb and the others uh, were sent out on an advance team to reconnoiter, to check out the promised land. Um, And when they got back, we find that Joshua and Caleb were impressed with God, not the giants. All the others, you see, were impressed with the giants. (laughs) They had their eye on men, not God. These two righteous men... Uh, had their eye on God. And compared to God, the giants weren't so big. You know the story about young David. We heard a wonderful uh, account of that at the feast where I was this year uh, about young David. Now, he was just a lad. How could he face Goliath, this huge giant who was so well trained? Well, David feared God, not the physical giant. That same principle applies to us in all the things that we do. Proverbs 9. Verse 10, Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. Again, it's that respect. It's awe. It's having uh, the right kind of approach to God in His way. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is the thing that we need to keep in mind. You know, brethren, the, the, the fear of God is foundational It will keep you out of trouble. And we all want to stay out of trouble. Hot water is not where you want to be. And if we fear God, if we put His ways into practice, then it will certainly keep us out of trouble. Proverbs 16, verse 6. Proverbs 16, verse 6. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. You don't have to look around and say the coast is clear if you're doing what God says to do. And yet many people today obviously stay in trouble because they don't follow these ways. Now, brethren, these are the primary things that we should learn at the feast. We need a heightened sense that this is not our world, not our age, not God's time. And we need a heightened sense of the reality of God, of His greatness and His power. Now, if we comprehend these things, the feast was a success. If we really grasped that, then the Feast of Tabernacles was a success. Now, how do you ensure that we learn these lessons? I mean, we're back home now. We're doing the things that we, we normally do. How, how can we be certain that we learn these lessons? Well, I have a couple of simple keys to help you accomplish these things. First, and this is so basic, brethren, but it can be overlooked. And since you might overlook it, I'm bringing it to your attention. 
The first is review the messages given at the Feast of Tabernacles and profit from them. A lot of prayerful consideration and preparation went into them. They were given in a great, lovely setting. Uh, they were inspired. So uh, go over them so you can profit from them. Think on them. Roll them over in your mind. Summarize them in your own words. And ask yourself, what was the point? What was the point? What was the, the kernel of truth? What was the nut, you see? What was the, the point in that sermon? And then, brethren, apply it to your own life. After you determine what was the point, ask the question, what now? <laughs> that is, what am I going to do with it? Again, a lot of time and effort and money was to have you there and to have everything set. So let's use that. Apply it to your life. Discuss these things with your family and your friends. And I hear you doing that here at services. And I know at the feast review and around the dinner table and at your office and other things, you'll, you'll be talking about these things. And that's good. It reinforces them. But discuss them with families and friends. Analyze your experiences. The good ones and the bad ones. <laughs> you see, if something didn't go right, if something went sour, if something didn't work out, spend a little time analyzing that and saying, what went wrong? How could I handle that differently? What would be some way to keep that from happening again? And certainly, brethren, uh, as we do that, relate them to the concepts that God wants you to learn. Turn over to Matthew 11. This is something that we need to grasp, and I know that you do. God wants us to learn from Him. Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus was talking to the people there in His time, and He said, Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to Me, all you who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All of us have the labors that we have. Whatever stage in life you are, you have something. You have your burden to bear. Verse 29, Christ said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus Christ would have us to learn from him, brethren. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Brethren, God, Jesus Christ, would have us to learn from Him. And as we go to the feast, as we rehearse these things, as we review them as we are today, we can learn from them. And each of us has our own lesson to learn. We learn different lessons in different stages in life. I find that someone at age 18 has one level of understanding about a scripture. At age 30, they will see it differently in life's experiences and things that they've gone through. They'll have a, a deeper understanding at 40, uh, at 60, uh, whenever we learn continually based on the experiences that we have and, and our own life's experiences as we look into God's Word. We are to learn from these experiences. And the way to do that is to rehearse them and review them. Your notes are of no value to you if you put them on the shelf. But they can be very valuable to you if you use them. The second key, brethren, as we think about these things, is to set specific goals. Now, are you completely satisfied with your life? Is there nothing you would like to change? If there is something you would like to change, brethren, then you have to set goals to do that. Uh, are you going to be different? You know, Einstein defined insanity this way, and that was to keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. <laughs> Pretty good definition of insanity. So if you want things to change, but things will not get better until you do. And then, you see, things will change. So are you going to be different? Are you going to change if you really want to set specific goals to work on? Now, brethren, to affect meaningful change, you must be specific. Generalizations won't get it. So rather than saying, um, I'm going to um, read this year. I'm going to read more books. Uh, make a list of which books you want to read. Uh, if you're going to uh, uh, exercise this year, uh, don't just say, I'm going to get some. Make a plan. Because if you, don't, if you aren't specific... It will not happen. And if you decide that you uh, want to lose some weight, 
I'm speaking to myself here. <clears throat> Set a specific goal. <laughs> how many pounds? <laughs> or as our uh, European allies might say, how many kilos? <laughs> The point is, brethren, we have to set specific goals if it's to be meaningful. Without goals, you'll fall back into a rut. The only difference between a grave and a rut is a rut has both ends kicked out, you see. (laughs) We'll fall back into a rut. Now, brethren, these goals can be working on family relationships. Maybe someone in your family that you haven't gotten along with. It could be in-laws, outlaws. It could be, uh, you know, whomever it might be. If you, if you have an area of that, we all can certainly work on family relationships. You know, the strongest feelings are in families. Families are good things, and yet we have to work on those relationships. It could be improving your relationship with your spouse. You may have a wonderful relationship. I'm going to guess it can be better. One of our ministers said at one of our meetings that uh, he and his wife kept a bear in the house. Said, I bear with him and she bears with me. <laughs> so keep a bear in the house and bear with your spouse and get, learn to get along better and do those things. It's important. It, could, it would be certainly pleasing to God since marriage pictures Christ in the church. It's, it's a specific goal that you can set on. Uh, it might involve uh, your prayer life. You know, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And certainly I think all of us can, can make that a more of a pri- priority. Or Bible study. We hear that a lot. Probably the first church service you ever attended in a church of God, you heard about prayer and study and meditation and fasting. And as long as you're here, you'll hear about those things because they're the building blocks of a spiritual life. And brethren, we can set goals to do a better job. It might involve how often you fast. I'm a terrible faster. It's not that I mind going without food. I just don't have time. (laughs) And I'm sure you feel the same way. How do you work that in? You have to be specific and and work on that. You know, if it was not for the Day of Atonement, some would never fast. I fall into that category. (laughs) The point is, it's something you have to set a goal and work on. As you think about your goals, it might be uh, attending Bible studies. You know, we have our uh, monthly Bible study here on the Sabbath, and then we have in-home Bible studies, and our attendance is pretty good, but it could sure be better. And it's important that we do that. Turn over to Second Timothy, one of those familiar scriptures. Second Timothy, chapter two, verse fifteen. Paul wrote to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So hopefully when we get together and have a Bible study, we're rightly dividing the word of truth. We're looking at things that we might not be able to cover in services. We're looking into the history, into uh, a lot more detail of various books of the Bible, various subjects, various themes. So hopefully as you think about things you might want to set as a specific goal, it could be attending Bible studies. It could be getting to know the brethren better. Peter wrote, you know, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. I love it that he added that part. (laughs) Be hospitable without grumbling. And you're a very hospitable group. I I tell people God's, God's people excel at breaking bread. I mean, that's what we do best. But certainly getting to know the brethren better, to get to know the person who's quiet or shy, the person who maybe doesn't have a lot to say and a real outgoing personality, the person who lives off the beaten track, the person who might not be able to invite you back. You see, we need to get to know the brethren better. something that you might set as a specific goal for yourself. Brethren, as we do these things, I think you'll see that the great God will be pleased. Now, brethren, without goals, you won't do anything about it. That's just the way we are as human beings. Now, some of you may keep your to-do list or your goals on your computer. Others will keep it in a day timer. Others may keep it on a yellow tablet, whatever. But make a list. Uh, I believe in making lists. I used to drive my children nuts. They would say, Dad, I need this. I would say, make me a list. They still do that to this day. If they want something, they'll make a list. And then we can decide what's, uh, what's the part of that list that uh, uh, is an absolute necessity and what part of that list is just a want. And then you can kind of pare it down. But without goals, brethren, you won't 
do anything about it. It's the plans we make that guide us. Make a list. Write them down. Set your goals high enough to make you reach. To stretch a little. But be realistic. And make your goals attainable. Because obviously you want to be able to uh, look at your year when it's all done and say, yes, I was, able to, I was able to attain these things. Now, a lot of people have good intentions, but just never get around to it. They used to have a little wooden coin called a round to it. <laughs> and they would hand those out because some people just never get around to it. And brethren, if you're going to do these things, you have to make the time and, and get around to it. It's really an important thing. Brethren, if this feast is going to make a difference in your life, decide what changes you want and need to make. Make those changes, and the feast will have been a real excess, success for you. Again, we went there. We did the things we were commanded to do. We went through the motions, and now the question is, will it truly be what you want it to be? Will it be what it should be for you? You see, brethren, the success of the feast has yet to be determined. It depends upon what you do with it. The things I've covered today have been very basic, and all of you know these things. But I think even though it's basic, it's good to look at them and to review. Follow through on these things, and it will truly be the most successful feast possible for you. So, brethren, I'll end this afternoon and ask you the question. Will your Feast of Tabernacles 2005 be successful?